But you look at this as an American, you're like, this is it's a really exciting time. And I think we love to look like sort of hate on ourselves until until someone else hates on us. And then we're all like, no, it's like talking about your you can talk about your kids all day long or your brother, <laughs> but someone else does it. You're highly offended. I think as an American, this is an exciting time. And I think we, we self-loathe. And we sort of lament the way things used to be because we think it was great. The reality is that we're going back to a really unprecedented renaissance that's going to be upon us. Hey guys, welcome back to the Fort Podcast. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating and review. Last but not least, you can find all these episodes on YouTube. Thank you so much again for joining me and enjoy the show. Craig, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today. Excited to be here. Yeah, I'm pumped. Uh, this got a lot of reaction on Twitter and and. It, it's close to my world. So today will be great. Let's just kind of lay the foundation of kind of how you got into what you're doing today and how you became an expert in, you know, supply chain, transportation, logistics. That's an interesting career path. Yeah. Well, I was born into it. So I have diesel in my blood. So <laughs> my dad started what's now the, I think the fifth largest truckload carrier in the United States. And my uncle started the eighth largest truckload carrier in the United States. So I was if there's such thing as big trucking, I came from big trucking. So uh, I learned the industry. These were both bootstrap businesses. My grandfather was sort of a trucking pioneer, but it's always been in my blood. And uh, I learned the ins and outs of the trucking industry uh, from my dad. And uh, if you've ever had a father as an entrepreneur, uh, then you probably know that most of your time is sort of, if you want to spend time with your father, you sort of learn the business. And you know he was always a, a happy teacher of, of how the business worked. And so I learned trucking industry from him. And then I, you know, worked inside the business and something called their on-demand, started an on-demand business inside of the company, which really traded in the spot market for last minute capacity, learned the ins and outs of pricing and the volatility of the freight market. And then I left and did a payments company and a fuel card that we sold to US Bank. Uh, and then two years of that and decided I wanted to do something different and left. Um, and uh, ended up seeing this investors pile into logistics and supply chain, and I wanted to be a part of the action. Uh, but a lot of what was emerging was sort of this digitization of a traditional model. And what I realized is that there was this gap in really someone becoming a neutral arbiter of information. In other words, there was no Bloomberg of freight at the time. And so I set out to, to really create a news and intelligence business that really empowers the companies and the providers that are in the space with better real-time information. And so uh, really sort of inspired by watching CNBC and Bloomberg uh, and ESPN and trying to create sort of a blend of Bloomberg with ESPN. I like to say if Bloomberg and ESPN had a baby in the back of a semi, that would be freight waves. And that's really what we're all about is really sort of, you know, we have a blue collar approach to the business. So we're talking with the industry and people in the industry in sort of a blue collar sort of actionable way uh, with, a, you know, a lot of data that's, you know, high frequency, high fidelity 
And that gives us insights on what's happening or likely to happen. And we have, you know, a really robust data science team that is monitoring the global logistics and supply chain market and providing real-time intelligence and forecast. And I think that, it, you know, has enabled us to build this really substantial news uh, site that's FreightWaves that... Uh, we have original journalists that are writing a lot of commentary based on the data we see, and the data empowers the journalist, and the journalist empowers the data by bringing context to it. So it's a model that works, and I think Bloomberg is the original. They're the OG of this model. We just taken it and ran with it. How, bi- how big is the the company, like the data science team, and and who are some of your customers? Like, who buys all this from you? Yeah, so we're a little bit over 200 employees. Uh, we're about five wow. years old as a company. Um, our... Uh, data science team is, if you took data science engineering analyst, uh, it's about 60 folks. Okay. Um, and then you have another journalist that are about 40. So about half the company's involved in either developing engineering models or data science and a- analytics or analyzing or writing, developing context to what's happening in the industry. So are these people domestic and like, where are you, I'm, I, this is fascinating. Where do you get your data from? Are you plugging into like, yeah, where does it all come from? So hundred percent of our staff is domestic. I don't, I don't believe, I think we have two like uh, uh, folks in Bangladesh or something that do yep. some really sort of cleansing of data, but everything else is domestic. Okay. The data is international and global focus. So one of the things, if you sort of think of logistics and supply chain, is that there is no central sort of clearinghouse of of information or transactions that happen around supply chain. And let's look at like UPS and FedEx. UPS and FedEx represent combined probably about 3% of all freight moved. Um, UPS, FedEx, DHL, and the US Postal Service, about 3%. So it's a very, you know, there is no single entity that has all this data. So what we've gone out and done is gone to the software companies that are in the space and have said, hey, you have all this data that you've accumulated over the last, you know, such decades. Um, We want to essentially take that data, cleanse it so it's not identifiable information of any of the individual participants in the market, but we want to build broader sort of uh, market level analytics and intelligence out of it. And that was how we originally started was we went to the software companies, which just have a lot of scale uh, in their various markets. Maybe they're in parcel, maybe they're in truckload, maybe they're in rail, uh, ocean, air, et cetera. Maybe they're warehousing. And and we said, let's take all this information, strip out all the identifiable components out of it, and build essentially indices based on what's happening. And that was how we started, and that's still the core part of what we do. And then as we publish these anonymized and aggregated and uh, data sets that provided intelligence of the market, we then went to the participants in the market and said, look, here are the data. You can buy it. You can consume it. You can use it for your own purposes. But if you want more granularity, if you want perhaps competitive granularity, not by an individual company, but by a cohort, uh, then you need to also provide us your data. So this sort of co-op model has enabled us to, to build you know, data inputs from participants in the market and has just made that data moat that much thicker. And so our data comes from uh, participants in the market that submit their data on a high-frequency basis. So we we get most of our data within 24 hours of when a transaction happens. Uh, and because supply chains tend to be way upstream to the broader U.S. economy, 
uh, you can actually see the U.S. economy, the physical side of the economy, uh, play out months before it sort of shows up in the broader sort of economic data. And so that's what we do is we're looking at that and we're our journalists are taking that information and, and contextualizing it with stories that provide information, anecdotes on what's happening and why it's happening. Uh, and again, these things are self-reinforcing. So you need the journalist to bring context, to ask the questions of why. You need them to do channel checks to make sure that you know something we're seeing is reflective of what's actually happening. And then the data helps inform them to go where to look. And that's essentially the way the model works. And it is, it is global. It is multimodal, which means truck and rail and ocean and barge and warehouse. It's really anything through the physical economy. That is a perfect segue into the meat of this conversation, what's going on today. But before we do that, if you had to give a five-year-old a definition of what a supply chain means, how would you explain it to them? So it, <laughs> five-year-olds are difficult. Fifth, we'll do fifth grade. Kids, fifth grade. We'll, we'll, we'll talk to my 11-year-old, which because uh, it, it's you know this stuff is complicated, but effectively a supply chain is how products, the materials are built and all the components and the vendors and suppliers that feed all of those inputs. So if you think of, let's think about the U.S. consumer. So a consumer is essentially pulling on the supply chain. So the way that the U.S. economy works is consumers are essentially the pull on the economy. Um, so we're a, a capitalistic free market and consumers represent the largest portion of the U.S. economy. And what they do is they pull on the economy. So they go in and they buy a product and that product is in the stores and they purchase it and consume it. And that product is then expired outside of the economy. It no longer exists mm. unless somebody resells it. So essentially upstream to that, the retailer you bought the product from gets something from a wholesaler. And that wholesaler, when that product is consumed, is pulled into the retail environment, they essentially replace it with a product from an upstream vendor. Maybe it's a manufacturer. Maybe it's another wholesaler. And they pull on it. And you you sort of have this chain of supply that continues to be pulled in from all of these sources. And supply chains are very, very dynamic. And can you can have hundreds, if not thousands, of participants in a supply chain. You just think about, particularly overseas supply chains, think about China and sourcing product from China. China, when you sort of buy products, that product may have changed hands 20 times. And I'm talking about a completed manufacturing product, manufactured product. It may have changed hands 20 times by the time that you get your hands on it as a consumer. Wow. And then upstream to them, there's all this raw material and components that come into it. And, you know, the more sophisticated a product is, let's say a, an iPhone, which may have hundreds of individual components, or maybe it has a few individual components. A car may have thousands of individual components. They themselves have their own supply chain. So you have a steel manufacturer that's manufacturing the steel. You have, uh, but but to the, the steel manufacturer still needs petroleum input to, to sort of drive the steel. They need the raw material, the iron to sort of uh, create that. So there are supply chains upon supply chains upon supply chains. And I think that's why it's so fragmented and sort of poorly understood. And we're, you know, at Freightways, even though we're the deepest in, in what we do, we're still only scratching the surface of understanding all the components of the supply chain and all the components that take it up. It's very much like human 
biology. You think about all the cells that are in your body, it's trillions of cells that are in the body, and there's these atoms that make up the cells that or make up the molecules that make up the cells. And there's all these nanoproducts or nano uh, sort of molecular stuff that's taking place in, in our bodies. And then at the end of it, you get this sort of body that we exist, <laughs> but we're actually just a component of all these little individual parts that are these molecules and atoms. And that's very much what a supply chain is, is essentially a finished product, whether it's a camera that I'm looking at or a computer. Those are just a bunch of individual components that in of themselves don't mean much. Yeah. But when you put them together, you have this sort of magic that takes place, which enables us to talk to one another on a computer or on a, on a, on a camera. And that is essentially a finished product, but all those components make up a supply chain. So when I'm looking at a camera, it's the lens and it's the glass and it's the microchips that make it up and it's the plastic that encompasses it. It's all those things have to be put together. And so you have all these little individual data points and providers that make that happen. And that is what a supply chain is. And it's quite magical when you think how, like just to assemble the camera that I'm looking at probably is 200 individual companies that have provided some microcosm of the product and uh, the paint. I mean, it's just, it's a fascinating sort of world that we live in that we've built this economy that enables us through industrialization to have these really amazingly sophisticated products. And as consumers, we take them for granted because we don't have to think about it. Oh, it's amazing. And when you think about where we're at today, we're, you know, you order a car and it's six months late. It's not because every, if the car is made of 20,000 pieces and one or two pieces is missing, the whole car doesn't work yet. It's what you just said. You need all of it for it to work. That's right. And that's where these disruptions really are, are playing havoc. So one of the things we're seeing currently uh, in the data is that inventories are, right. if you take used or take automotive out of the inventory data, just completely remove automotive. Inventories are at record highs. And so uh, what's happening, and then, but yet you'll still see supply chain issues. And, and to your point, what, what's happening is you can have a lot of raw material. So take a car. I can have every single component I need. I can have the tires. I can have the steel. I can have the, the doors and the paint. I can have all of that. But if I don't have the semiconductors or the dashboard or the steering wheel, or the leather that wraps into the steering wheel because I've decided I want to put leather around my steering wheels to sell them for a premium price. If I don't have all that, then I can't sell a finished car. So what happens is those cars that I've built and constructed that have already effectively built are waiting for one or two or three components. And I, I won't sell them if I'm an auto manufacturer until I am confident that I can meet the customer's expectations of what that product looks like. Some components are obviously far more important to a finished product than other components. So a semiconductor that controls the heated seats in my car, maybe not that important to sell the car. But a semiconductor that controls the engine diagnostics or the timing of the engine in terms of the transmission, probably need that. So it's, it's not as simple as saying that we don't have inventories or we have too much inventories. We just may not have the right sets of inventories at the right time for the right products. And that is what's causing a lot of these supply chain issues that we hear about. Yep. It's not that there isn't product and in inventory. It's just that maybe we don't have the right ones. All right. So your family's been in this business for generations now. 
it's it's a loaded question, but if you had to if you had to compare what is happening in the world today, supply chain wise, with periods of time, are we in unchartered unchartered territory, or have we been through something like this before? Let's set the stage for what is happening in the world right now. Yeah, it's quite fascinating because if you go back, I often describe supply chains sort of like you just think of your utility company. So think about this for a second. So your audience as well, think about this for a second, is when was the last time you thought about your power company? And you sort of think about that, well, last time I paid the bill, right? That's the natural sort of response. But think about beyond that, when was the last time you thought about the power company itself? When your power went out? And so supply chains operate the same way. Is like we only think about the supply chain when it's not working or when it's not working to the expectations that we have as consumers. So when products aren't flowing is when we think about the supply chain and we become suddenly aware of that. And if you're not hearing about the supply chain, it's because it's broadly working. But we're hearing a lot about it. So on the news consistently, the fact that People are tuning into freightways as much as they are, and the amount of traffic we're getting is largely reflective of this sort of chaos that's happening and people trying to get answers they, they often don't have to think about. And if you think about sort of in a post-Cold War world, for the past 30 years and the majority of my life, we enjoyed prosperity and we enjoyed the ability to get our hands on products whenever we wanted them. We enjoyed an on-demand economy, and we've enjoyed prosperity because supply chains have been built to service and provide us products when we wanted them with every color and feature that you could possibly imagine. And all of that is sort of broken down in the past 12 months. And so we have to answer ourselves, ask ourselves, why is that broken down? And the reason that it's broke has broken down is that all of that customization and that on time was built on a system of just in time inventories that enable companies to provide very high level of customization in the mind of a consumer, but really was built so that they didn't have to hold significant amount of inventories, but they could sort of provide the products when they were being ordered or when they were being bought. And they can continue to refill the uh, supply lines as as products were ordered. And they built this, engineered this model in a post-Cold War world, which enabled us as consumers to enjoy unprecedented prosperity. Well, COVID broke all that because they changed so many things about the world and how the world worked that it's, we're not going to go back to the way things were before. And so these things have always been sort of broken. So the reason that logistics companies and supply chain companies exist is because they deal with these exceptions. But generally, the system worked, and there was enough sort of excess in the system that it allowed these short-term shocks geopolitical events, terrorist attacks, weather, you know, stockouts, things would happen, but they would sort of be easily resolved because there was enough excess in the economy to sort of pull that down. Well, when the U.S. government and Treasury flooded the U.S. economy and the global economy full of money, consumers largely spent and consumed a lot of that money. And what it did was that demand showed up at the very same time that the world's manufacturing was shut down. And if it wasn't fully shut down, like it was in China, but in the United States sort of partially shut down, they weren't operating at 100%. Maybe they were operating at 20% or 30%. And so what happened is these demand, these orders sort of piled up at the same time 
that consumers or the manufacturers were had were were way behind in production. And the thing about demand in products is it's not as if that demand, those orders go away. They just pile up. And the whole thing about transportation movement and supply chains is you have a finite number of components, but you also have time. So there's orders are piling up and you have this backlog of orders. And that's what caused all those products and all those ships to sort of flow through these bottlenecks. And there just wasn't enough capacity to sort of deal with all of that demand coming into our shores. And so what happened is the whole system sort of broke down. And so when you ask about whether this is new and unprecedented, the answer is absolutely yes. But the reasons is that the world is being completely reshaped as we think about it. Now, let's go look at what else is happening. So you have these geopolitical constraints that are happening with Russia is sort of trying to enact its will on the rest of the world or certainly Eastern Europe. And it's sort of created a substantial amount of problems and uh, and disruption to supply chains in Ukraine because it's one of the world's sort of bread baskets, if you will. It's a source of a lot of energy and, and natural gas. And so it's caused a significant amount of disruptions there. And then you have this emerging China, which really was a relatively docile force for the past 30 years. If you sort of look at you know, we don't like China because we're very threatened by it. We don't like the fact that their economy is growing faster than ours. And they're, you know, but but they were relatively in, in the world a pretty benign actor compared to what their economic power was. They were manipulating markets to a degree and certainly an oppressive regime to their own people. But in a world market, they were actually a pretty predictable and benign actor and weren't doing a lot of things that were overly aggressive. They were just manufacturing. But they've sort of assented now. And because of all the pressures of these supply chain, the demand, the amount of money, and the fact that all of a sudden that demand is dropping off, they now have structural problems in their country that are sort of unprecedented. They benefited from the last 30 years of American power. Like America enabled China to be what China is. Like they essentially got to grow their economy through the benefit of American consumers buying products on the cheap. They got to grow their economy because the American military was protecting the oceans and protecting and keeping bad actors, and letting the, the flow of oil and natural gas and, and raw materials flood the global economy. The problem is America is now pulled back. And America has said, and you look at the last two elections, and I don't care whether you voted right, you voted left, blue or red, it doesn't matter. We as Americans have both, we have voted for populist in both elections and essentially isolationist in both elections. Donald Trump's an isolationist and a, and a populist, and so is uh, Biden. And as Americans, we have said we don't care about the world as much as we once did. And so what's happening now is China is somewhat panicking. Because the bargain that the Chinese government has given their people is, we will give you unprecedented prosperity that you've never known. And we will ensure that you have food and that you have anything you ever sort of dreamed far above your expectations. But we will maintain control and we will have full auto autonomy of what we do and full control of it. And so what's happening is all of this tension that's sort of built up is starting to fall apart. And COVID, the disruption, the shocks to the global economy is what's causing that. So supply chains are starting to fall apart. 
because these geopolitical events and these economic events and this virus has sort of broken all of that model. And supply chains are relatively well-oiled machines. And all of a sudden you have you have these disruptions and you sort of have these frays that are happening along that chain. And it's all sort of not working. It doesn't feel right anymore as Americans. And we're sort of confused by this because in our lifetimes, at least in my lifetime, we've never known this. But if you go back through history, supply chains have always been disrupted. They've <laughs> always been subject to this. And you go back to World War II, like our, our, our grandparents were rationing everything practically because there wasn't enough of any of it. It was all going to the war effort. And now we're sort of wondering as consumers, like, what does this all look like? Because it's unusual uh, to us. But the reality is this is a new world order and we've sort of entered a second Cold War. And China doesn't really know how to respond to American uh, – what's happened in the last couple of years with America sort of focusing on its own efforts. And America's sort of post-COVID sort of response and resilience is sort of unexpected for the Chinese. And so they're essentially attacking their own people because they don't know what to do. But that has massive disruptions to global supply chains. Well, you, put, you tweeted something the other day. I'm going to read it. And I agree with you. I actually commented on it last night. You said, what if China is purposely shutting down its country to wreak havoc on the global supply chain even further and to exert its power over the quality of lives of the Western world? We're being told by our media that it's a COVID, zero COVID. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But I really align with what you said in that it seems just a little weird that three years into this mess, we're just going to start locking down for long periods of time, knowing what it's going to do to the rest of the world. So can you expand on that? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I will say I don't know that anyone knows why. I mean, this is if you sort of look at what's happening right now, this being you know, mid-April, we're, we're doing this conversation, I think it's April 19th. And yeah. one of the things that sort of is, is sort of shocking is that the Chinese government for really the last three weeks in Shanghai and in Guangzhou and sort of put perspective of what those cities represent is so Shanghai is the equivalent of New York City. It's the, it's the financial center of China. It's the most cosmopolitan city in China. It tends to be Western focused. A lot of expats, international corporations headquartered in uh, Shanghai. The Chinese government has sort of let it run because it's all about sort of money and sort of think of the way New York is Beijing is equivalent of Washington, D.C., very political focused, and Shanghai is sort of the New York. And, and essentially, they've locked this entire city down. And, and, and the, if you think of like what that means as an American, we talk about these egregious locks down. Maybe California is an example of what that looked like for an American. It seemed extreme to a Tennessean or a Texan or a Floridian, like the fact that San Francisco won't let you uh, won't let you go into a restaurant without a mask, or uh, you couldn't leave. You could walk outside, but but the Chinese have taken that to an extreme, which they literally have barricaded people in their homes. They've locked the fences around some of these apartment complexes that are in China uh, because these are mostly high rise buildings that you see in these cities, and they have drones and police that are out there to arrest you. And let's, let's keep in mind, the worst place you can possibly be probably in the world is a Chinese prison. Like an autocratic a, a, a regime, uh, you're not going to be treated well. Like American prisons, as bad as they are, are, have nothing on Chinese prisons. And so nobody wants to be locked up. I mean, you may never come back. And 
that that is the threat that the government has done. They've completely shut down Shanghai. And then Guangzhou, which is the world's sort of the most important manufacturing city in China, they've shut that down too. And so they've shut down 40% of their economy. And the question is why? To your point, we spent two years with COVID. We in the West sort of learn, have learned to live with it. It's not something we've enjoyed, but we've learned to live with it. We've adapted. And over the past, say, six months, we said, screw it. I'm going to go out and do what I want to do. And if I get sick, I'm, maybe I'm vaccinated. Most people are. Maybe I'm not. But I'm going to deal with it. And I will take the risk of getting COVID because there is great treatment and understanding of how this stuff travels. And for two years, the Chinese government and media claimed that they did not have an outbreak of cases. They had no deaths for two years. The first part of the <laughs> virus, they had a lot of deaths in Wuhan, and they sort of locked it down. And the Chinese government told their people that it was under control, that there was nothing to worry about. All of a sudden, Omicron, which is a relatively mild illness, sort of takes hold. We know how uh, uh, contagious it, it was here in the United States, and it's sort of taken hold. And all of a sudden, the Chinese government, after two years, has decided to shut down its economy. The most important cities in China, two of the three biggest cities, the only one they have in China is Beijing, which is where the central government is. You have to ask yourself why. And I don't have those answers. A lot of reasons of why people have suggested it. Is it economic issues? Is it that the U.S. consumers are no longer pulling on demand and that's slowing down the amount of orders and therefore it's showing the amount of dollars that are flowing into China? Possibility. Is it because the Chinese government, because they're not able to deliver growth and prosperity, has said this grand bargain we have with people is starting to fray and they're really worried about political tension that may show up, quite possible and probable? Is it because they have a food crisis, an energy crisis? Now, here, here's one of the sort of astounding things about China. China imports at least, so they're one of the most food insecure nations in the world and probably are the most if you sort of look at the amount of food insecurity they have they're one of the most food insecure nations in the world they import about eight percent of the food that they eat they import it counter that to the united states we export 35 percent of the food our farmers are so good at what they do and the technology and that we use to to farmers they're just so productive we have no choice but to export it in fact the U.S. government pays farmers not to produce because we're so good at it. They don't want all this, all these uh, uh, products flooding the market. We're just that good. China's the opposite. The other thing that China has to import is energy. So oil and that gas, they're the world's largest importer of oil. They import 65% of the energy that they consume in China is imported from outside the world. And you think about those manufacturing plants and factories that really make up China. It takes a lot of energy to produce that. And we saw last year during uh, the summer that they had rolling brownouts and blackouts because they didn't have enough energy to supply the grid. So here we are in Mar uh, April of 2022, and all of a sudden they have these rapid lockdowns. And we in America and a Western orientation cannot answer why. Now, part of this is I don't know the answer. There are people that believe that it's an attack on Americanization and the Western economies. And, are, and it was, as you pointed out, the quote that I retweeted 
came out of a, I think a New York Times article that Zero Hedge had republished. That's right. Was basically this idea that maybe China is enacting all of this pain on the West because it wants to demonstrate its power. That is a possibility, and I'm not discounting it. And I think it's a compelling possibility. But probably as compelling or likely is that China is in an unprecedented position in this post-Cold War world that they've never known, which is they can no longer guarantee growth. And with inflation of food and energy being so substantial since the Russian conflict or war, that because of the way that the Chinese economy works is they don't want the flow of U.S. dollars leaving their economy. They have to, they have to buy all these products. And they're trying to save off inflation as much as possible. And the best way to do that is to slow down production. That is just as likely is that this is a reaction based on economics and their inability to control runaway inflation and concern about social pressures inside their own country that very well may, may be causing some of this. And so I think it's quite possible both of those things are at play is that they have internal pressures caused by hyperinflation and pressures caused by what's happening in the West and still trying to be a factor in how the Western economies work. There's also a third possibility, which has been brought up, is that the premier of China, President Xi, is an autocratic dictator of a very powerful country, but is largely isolated from any of the information on the ground. Chinese media sort of is the voice piece of the government. There is no third-party media. Certainly, uh, freightways would probably be banned. And we're like an insignificant portion of media in the, in the United States. We probably wouldn't exist or allowed to be exist. I'd probably be arrested for even writing stuff that isn't, isn't official. And because China has this lot on media and it's built as a country where information is supposed to be positive and endearing to how great the, the premier's and President Xi's government is, it's quite possible that what is happening inside the country is just that the government bureaucrats are committed to the zero tolerance policy and are just executing that because they think that's what's expected of them. And then the information to stop it isn't getting up to the key decision makers, and they're not believing or hearing or seeing what we're seeing in the West. And it, it, there's just so many questions I don't have the answers to. I can't, as an American, comprehend it, frankly. Like, it seems really bizarre. But I'm also an American. I'm a capitalist. And none of this stuff makes sense. So any of those possibilities are quite possible. And I, I don't know that we have the answers. Oh, man, this is so freaking good. Um just to comment on what you just said and for people listening, uh, it's something I think about a lot is it's, it's piggybacking off what you just said. Uh, America is a media run state. We let these third party media outlets kind of dictate the narrative and China is a state run media, meaning it comes from one part. I don't know the right answer, but, um, they each have their faults and, and we know why. Um, so it's, it's fascinating to think about it that way. All right. So you've been kind of vocal about you know, there's there there's even part of America now is like China's going to eat our lunch. You know, they're going to win. And I, you tweeted something again the other day, and I was like, this made my day. Maybe I may have said it made my month. That you have a a different opinion. You think that 
um, this plays into our favor. And obviously you have a lot of data backing up some of these probably things that you're thinking. So let's kind of keep moving the conversation that way. What does all this mean? Not we can talk about today, but let's kind of think in context over the next decade. What does this mean for America that China is kind of waking up to a world that is going to be a lot different than the last 30 years that made them great? Yeah. So one of the sort of and we've talked about the bargain that Chinese government had with its people, but the Chinese government and the Chinese economy had this grand bargain with the West or the West, we should say, had a grand bargain is basically provide us cheap goods, make it so that those flow of goods continue to flow over and we'll let you do whatever you want to do to your own people. Like, just stay out of our way as Americans and we'll protect the global oceans. We'll keep oil flowing, even though the majority of that oil doesn't come to the United States. Our navies will protect the waters. And you as a government, and we'll be the, the global reserve currency, but just all you have to do as Chinese is make sure that our goods flow and our supply chains are dependable. And as Americans, as capitalists, we were okay. We didn't like it. We didn't like the environmental policies of the Chinese. We're willing to sort of let them play in a different playing field. We certainly didn't like how they treated their own people. But we were willing to ignore it so long as products flowed into the United States because we're greedy consumers. Like, we like cheap goods. We like going to Target and Walmart and buying something that's, you know, a T-shirt that's like $10 and shoes that are like $15 or Nikes that are 60 bucks. We enjoyed unprecedented prosperity as consumers and unmatched prosperity because we made this grand bargain with the Chinese. But the Chinese have broken that. And what they've broken it is that the autocratic regime of China has attacked that system and is now no longer a dependable source of products. And if they're willing to shut down their economy and the supply chains that we as American businesses and consumers depend on, then that matters to us. All of a sudden, we care. And the reason we care is we can no longer depend on them as trading partners because they're no longer going to stay with the grand bargain that we had with them as a trading partner. And so as American business owners are looking at all of this instability in China where all of a sudden products are no longer flowing like they used to flow and they've shut down their economy and we no longer can depend on the items that we need. So we have a couple of choices. And so what you see is companies are now holding more inventory than they've ever held before because they want to make sure that they don't run out of those products. COVID taught them they must have inventory on hand. And if you go back to 2021, go back to last year, and you look at the companies that exceeded earnings and the companies that missed earnings, it wasn't a demand problem. It wasn't really a product problem. It's entirely based on whether they had inventory. If they couldn't act upon a sell when a consumer came to the website or came to the store, they would do exceptionally well because they had inventory. The companies that didn't have those inventories that ended up missing earnings and were punished in the stock market. So you take two companies, take Target and take Bed Bath & Beyond. Target blew out its earnings. And it blew out its earnings because it had a robust supply chain and had product selection. It had prepared and managed through the supply chain crisis much better than Bed Bath & Beyond did, which tends to focus on low-end 
or you know highly commoditized bath products and bedding products which tend to be textile based and largely come from china what we've learned in that is that if you are a supply chain manager and we're 2 years into this crisis is that if you don't have a resilient supply chain and source of goods that your company is going to be punished by wall street because the consumers are going to go somewhere else to buy the same product items from somewhere else and that is a complete change because we no longer can depend on consistent flowing products from china we have as supply chain managers in the united states are forced to say what is the willingness that i'm willing to sit here and let china chinese government and chinese politics and chinese economy drive the success or failure of my business and because of that american supply chain professionals are starting to question and are not just starting to question but starting to act upon leaving china now this is something we've talked about at freightways since 2017 really since donald trump got elected he was sort of the first person in government that was willing to challenge this post cold war system of this america chinese economic relationship and i don't care what your politics are at the end of the day donald trump was the person that brought it to a head there was people on the on the left that were uncomfortable with chinese environmental and humanitarian rights and there were people on the right that were sort of worried about chinese military and china economic power but at the end of the day for most of the post cold war we were sort of willing to deal with it but donald trump came on and said that and companies said we sort of assumed that over time companies would move manufacturing near shore it and they would move production they would move inventory it didn't happen so a lot of people that figured it would and the reason it didn't happen for those first couple of years is that it felt like donald trump was just too erratic we also sort of assumed as american businesses we just ride this guy out like eventually <laughs> he won't get elected. he will not he'll manage to get himself unelected which effectively happened and and so you essentially end up in this situation where we're sort of thinking in a post donald trump world that whoever gets elected will sort of restore the world the way it was covid happens massive disruption to supply chains we have a new uh presidential party in power president biden doesn't reverse any of donald trump's trade policies regardless of what you said he didn't reverse any of them so we are now as americans of established that we're willing to sort of challenge that world order and then you have covid that starts to massively disrupt things and then the chinese government starts to act really strange and so then you're like as an american business can i really trust the chinese as a consistent provider yes it's true they're cheap cheap labor cheap cheap products but when i'm having to pay 10 times the price to move my freight containers from china to the united states has a significant cost but more importantly if i can't trust my vendor if i can't trust my supplier then i'm going to make choices of looking at nearshoring or onshoring as my appropriate choice for running my supply chain so the winners of this are american warehouse operators because I'm going to need to hold more inventory. I'm going to have my sources of products closer to my assembly and final production. Maybe I'm still importing cheap products from China. I'm just holding a lot more of it than I used to. 
maybe I'm looking at places like Mexico as my assembly location and my factory locations. And I think what we're seeing is this reorientation of the world away from China. And it's happening. We're at Freightways getting a lot of demand for what we call site selection studies, which if you sort of think about a supply chain, half of the cost in a supply chain. Well, I'm, ta I'm not talking about raw materials. I'm, I'm talking about running the supply chain. Half of the cost is in transportation. And that was based on data two years ago. If you look at it over the past probably two, past two years, it's probably around 65%. So the largest line item in running a supply chain is transportation. And the thing that drives transportation expenses and cost is how far a product is from the final customer. And so if transportation is putting headwinds and I can't trust my partner, the Chinese, my Chinese vendor, and then I have the backdrop of fuel cost increases and inflation. I also have the backdrop of environmental concerns and carbon emissions that are sort of a lot of pressure there. Then I have to start to re-question all of that. And at the same time, me as a supply chain executive who's been largely ignored because I'm a back office person is now being invited to, to spend time with the CEFOs and CEOs of these companies. I'm now important, and I now have a voice. I haven't had a voice before. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I wish this could go on for five hours, but we still have a lot of time. Um, is there – I have, like, several questions, but I'll just give a, a quick one, and you don't have to – you can answer it however you want. Is there anything to believe that – you know, we're going to wake up tomorrow and be like, all right, China, never mind. Let's let's just chill out. Let's all go back to harmonious and get back in bed together and let the world resume or or, you know, enough. I don't want to call it damage, but enough has been done that, that we're going to start moving in a different direction. It's like, is there any data or anything you're seeing no. that that's even possible? It's not happening. OK, uh, American businesses are no longer going to tolerate that. I mean, some products, low end products will always be sort of sourced elsewhere, but in terms of core manufacturing, no. It's, it is a foregone conclusion that American businesses are now thinking about it. And supply chain executives have been have been wanting to move back and source products domestically, but have been largely ignored. I mean, CEOs of companies didn't even know who ran their supply chain two years ago. Never met with them. Never talked to them. Yep. Sort of the back office shipping manager, right? And so now those very individuals are meeting with the CEOs on a weekly basis and talking to them about what's happening because they matter. So, so one of the arguments, uh, you know, I, I, we're going to talk about industrial real estate in a bit. That's what I do for a living. But, um, you know, one of the arguments is, well, America's so slow. There's no way you can get all these companies back. It's too expensive, blah, blah, blah. Is there anything in Washington, any legislation, any anything that's that maybe you're hearing about that's going to say, look, we're going to make it very easy for people to onshore again in America, or is it going to be kind of grinding away? I mean, um, like how if, if we need to get out of China, are we bringing it literally into the United States? Or are we bringing it to Canada and Mexico? What's going on? I think Mexico is your biggest winner here. And I think a lot of people sort of counter with the instability of the Mexican government. Well, Mexican government, I mean, cartels are a real factor. But let's remember that the violence that they have is really cartel to cartel. Yeah, they 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 pretty dire, but they tend to don't mess with the factories that 
are there. And let's not forget the the cartels need transportation networks and freight networks to move their product. Mm -hmm. Like you're not going to import cocaine in a 53 foot trailer (laughs) and like declare it at customs. You need alternative products to move. And so in many ways, these factories are sort of in cahoots. And so, yeah, there, there's going to be instability, but compared to the Chinese, if I have a disruption in my Mexican source, I can, I will know about that much quicker and the chances of it sort of shutting down and, and taking months to be resolved is, is doesn't, you know, it's resolved in a week. And so, um, it's going to be messy, but we're going to see products move to Latin America and Texas and we'll see more inventory, but Washington's going to largely ignore this and that's fine. I mean, the fact is the government doesn't actually have a lot to do with the success of this or not. It's the market that will do it. Well, okay. So let's just think about that for a second though. If the government though is kind of whether you're, and you've kind of said, whether you're Biden or Trump, you're kind of, they may say it in a different way, but we're kind of both on the same page that we're bringing things back. But then what you're saying is, but they're also going to take the stance of let the private markets figure out how this all shakes out. They're not going to say we're taking it back and we got to make it a little bit easier. I, they, just, they don't have enough control. I mean, other than tariffs and some policy, they don't actually have a lot of control over American supply chains. I mean, they can they can sort of block products from out, you know, around the world from either import or export. They have some control, but generally. American policy is sort of laissez-faire towards most businesses. I mean, business owners in America, we'd love to hate the government and all the regulations. But generally, the U.S. government is sort of hands-off when it comes to trade policy, except when they're implementing tariffs or uh, restricting the flow of goods. But generally, there's not a whole lot the American government could do or would do to sort of drive this. It's just American businesses being real and saying, hey, if I want to compete, then I need my products because if I don't have those products and consumer spending is discretionary, then the consumer is going to go somewhere else. It's kind of a loaded question, but you know, we started this by saying, you know, we're not going back. So whatever listeners have in their mind of 2019, early 2020, that world is, is gone. Where are we going? Are we going back to a world where there isn't going to be on demand? I, I know like from an inventory perspective, the new frame of uh, the, the terminology is just in case inventory, meaning people are going to load up just in case something happens. But should we expect for the foreseeable future that, you know, I know I put in an order for a car nine months ago. I still don't have it. And I emailed the dealer the other day and I, he's still months away from from getting it. Should we just expect that for the next however long? Is that the new world or like what is not going back? Where are we going? So I don't, I grew up in the, I was a kid of the 1980s and I remember watching Saturday morning cartoons because like we didn't have cable and like Saturday morning cartoons were like the thing. It was like my time as a kid. I got like four hours of like cartoons I could watch. And do you remember those commercials that would come on and they would be like, uh, this product, but wait six to eight weeks for it to be delivered. Yeah. That was the 1980s. That was Cold War was still act. That is the world that we grew up and we were comfortable as children and, and adults back in those days of like waiting for product. We're largely headed back to a, a, a world where it's going to take longer than we've enjoyed because we're, we're, the world is reorientating itself. There will be a movement towards accelerated time throughputs. That eight months or 10 months or 12 months you wait for your car is not an indefinite uh, yeah. uh, uh, issue. It's just that 
the world that we're currently experiencing is messier than the world that we enjoyed two years ago because things aren't working. And it's because the systems are broken down and American businesses are having to think differently. And like I said, supply chain managers are now getting the attention in the C-suite they didn't get before. And cost is secondary to dependability and trustworthiness. Let's just kind of assume that everything we just talked about is, is you know, on its way. That means now we're thinking about onshoring. We've talked about Mexico and we'll talk more about Mexico. Do we even have the labor in America? And let's, I kind of want to focus on labor now um, and the way that America, based on what we have today, and again, we've let 30 years of everything happening in China, it hadn't been happening here to the degree that we probably would need it to, but do we even have the labor to take on this? Do we have to depend on Mexico? Like who is going to do all this stuff that we need done if consumers want to consume it even near the rate they were kind of going into COVID? Yeah, I mean, look at the auto. If you've been to a modern auto plant, so go look at tour a General Motors plant and then look at how many people it took to assemble a car in the 1980s and go into a modern General Motors plant or Ford plant, you know, outside of Memphis that's being built or a Tesla plant or, or you know, even a Volkswagen plant that's been built in the last 10 years. The, the reality is that modern automation and robotics has taken some of the pressure off of having to have human involvement in a lot of the manufacturing. So the, the fact is that these factories that are coming back are not coming back as, is, as if they were before. They're coming back far more automated, far more uh, robotic-based. Uh, and so what we will see is the really high-end manufacturing of electronics, high-margin, perhaps pharmaceuticals. Those items will shift back first into sort of America onshoring we will see less dependability of sort of these high-end products and high-margin products that that really is a lot of price elasticity move to the United States first. So those plants will come here first. The more cheaper items, the low-end items, those will largely lag behind, but they will very well probably end up in places like Mexico and Latin America and maybe even Africa. Uh, because they're sort of away from the, the Chinese. And and look, we're not talking about Vietnam and Thailand and Indonesia and Malaysia benefiting. They're largely ben net beneficiaries because they don't have – they tend to be a little bit less um, autocratic and less called arrogant than what the Chinese government is. They're far more needy and need these jobs and need production. And they're still in their sort of ramp-up period. Uh, and they're a little bit more dependable, frankly, than the China, Chinese. So like, we'll see a lot of the low-end manufacturing sort of – Go to places like Bangladesh and Pakistan and India, uh, and then a lot of the high-end manufacturing, electronics and pharmaceuticals and, and some of these higher-end items uh, will end up back in America or, or on in Mexico. I know this isn't a geopolitical podcast episode, but— um, <laughs> Sorry, I know we've talked geopolitics, no, but— No, it's, it's amazing. No, it, and, Supply and, chains are geopolitics. Like it is. The, we are the front lines of geopolitics, and— what happens in the world and geopolitics impacts supply chains. They're the front lines right now. I am, and and I I was gonna say like I it's now dawning on me how integrated they two are. So maybe it is that type of episode. Um, <laughs> and I didn't mean to even go there, but that's you have to understand the context of how we got here. Didn't understand what's happening. No, I wanted to take it here. I this is exactly where I hope we end up, and it it just my mind's exploding with questions. Um. And again, I'm not saying that you have all the answers, but if 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 
what is kind of unfolding is happening. What is the bull case for China right now that they're able to go find new partners in India and Russia and some of these other countries and reorient them to 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 work, you know, side by side and say, America, you can go do whatever you want to do is, you know, what's going to happen? Because I as I'm it's going through my brain, you can kind of feel the unraveling happening even within their own country. I mean, China's going impl- to this is part of the sort of America paranoia. America needs an enemy. Let's just say that like American. The American psyche is it's us against somebody, right? So yeah. in the Cold War, it was communism. Go back through history, it was the Brits at one point, and the French, and even the Native Americans were were all enemies. And so we as Americans have to have some enemy. Maybe it's the North and South, and hopefully we're not fighting amongst each other. And really, through the Cold War days, we've been, you know, in, in the last couple of years, we've been it's the red versus blue, the the left versus the right. What What's happening is that China is imploding right in front of our eyes, and we don't even realize that that's happening. Is this is a this erratic behavior by the Chinese government just makes no sense, and it makes sense because they don't know how to deal with this new sort of world order. The Chinese are very exposed. I mean, if you think about if you really wanted to 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 destroy, like we talk about a war of Taiwan, the reality is all you have to do is cut off the oil supplies into China, and they're gone. You did cut off the food supplies into China. They can't win a war without either of those things. We've seen in Russia, if you don't have logistics, I don't care how much military spending you have and how big your military is, if you don't have a supply chain, you are done. And China is dependent upon energy and food. And without that, they cannot survive. So as Americans, we're seeing this reorientation towards a great sort of a second stance of America. The best thing that's happened to America is Putin attacking Ukraine. Because what it's done is everybody's realized that we're now the stable country. And so it gives us an enormous amount of economic power in the United States and gives us an enormous amount of political power. And there's nothing that Chinese can do. They can align themselves with Brazil. They can align themselves with India. They can align themselves with Russia. But that is largely outside of the American system. Every commodity in the, on the planet is priced in U.S. dollars. It is the world's reserve currency. When you saw Russia attack Ukraine and, the, and dollars, uh, oil shot up, all these people were predicting the death of the petrodollar. But yet the, all of the world's uh, money supply ended up coming into the United States. So this whole idea that America is done is actually the best thing that's ever happened to us, frankly, in the last couple of years is this reorientation towards Americanism. And that's going to mean that the American economy is going to continue to thrive and it's going to mean manufacturing is going to come back. Warehousing is going to be demand is going to be quite robust. It means you're going to have more inventories than you had to hold in the past because you can no longer depend on these trade lanes to the degree I did. And we're going to see an American renaissance it's going to be very similar to sort of post-World War II in terms of this booming economy when it comes to manufacturing production here in the United States, unlike we've seen in many, many decades. Craig, I want to jump through this camera and just go give you a big hug right now. <laughs> like, I grew up as a free market. Like, <laughs> Thomas Friedman, the world's flat was sort of my orientation. And I largely believe that globalization was great for the world because it allowed world prosperity. But we now have realized that the 
that the Chinese government and Putin and these world actors don't care so much about this free flowing of products and free flowing of money. They had the, these regimes are fraying and imploding and we don't see it now, but I, I would make a prediction in the next couple of years that the Chinese system may collapse on itself very much like Russia and the Soviet Union did back in, you know, back in the, the late eighties, simply because what the Chinese are doing against their own people is unprecedented uh, in terms of shutting down its economy. And it just doesn't make sense. And so yeah. we go back to what that means for America, American businesses. It means that American businesses can no longer trust the Chinese system to be a, uh, a supplier. The longer that these supply chain issues happen, the more investment that will be underwritten for American production, the more investment towards American warehousing inventory, the more investment towards investing on manufacturing production along the Mexican border. That is a positive thing. It's messy right now. It means that things are a little uncomfortable, but it's going to pay dividends over the next couple of years. All right. So we're headed back into America. What are what are the the most dominant is is trucking the most dominant form of moving goods? Is it ships? Is it air? Is it what where is the majority of when we think supply chain transportation, where is like the biggest part of the pie chart? Is it in trucking? Well, 75% of my, uh, what we call ton miles is the, the amount of freight moved through the economy is in trucking. It's domestic, right? Trucks don't go over the ocean and, and ships don't go over the land. So um, the if you look at domestic, you know, if you look at total transportation spend as a sort of a pie chart, 45% of that is in trucking globally. Ocean's uh, about 20-some some odd percent. Rail is a portion of that. Um, so ocean is smaller than trucking as a portion of freight moved globally. It's just that 90% of the world's products move on the oceans. But trucking is still the largest and most important sector for the U.S. economy. And look, U.S. economy is only 10% trade. So like, we're, we're, is, what's shocking to most Americans is that, yes, we import a lot of products, mostly low-end consumer products. But the vast majority of our production actually happens domestically. Okay, well, let's start at the ports. Um, tr you know, so, so something has to get off a ship. And right now, our ports are congested as hell. We see pictures of, you know, boats sitting out in the ocean. That that might have stopped in more recent. You've kind of mentioned several times on this podcast that the, the cost of containers moving across the oceans is uh, skyrocketing. What is happening at the ports right now? Why are they so congested? Is it because Walmart and Amazon and Target and all the big boys get to have first in line and are staying first in line? You mentioned Bed Bath & Beyond, and my mind immediately went to they don't have the resources to compete against Target. But what's happening there? Why is it so messed up in the ports? Well, you just have a finite choke point. So we think about how much money got flooded into the economy, for cons and it was used for consumption, American consumers back two years ago, ordered so much that those products came through choke points, which the whole thing about transportation markets is that it's a capacity-constrained market, which means that capacity, the supply, is always trying to match the demand. And because it's a very cyclical and volatile market in terms of demand cycles, 
is that companies are not going to go over. I mean, one of the advantages of the Chinese government, the Chinese system, is that they can make investments that are 10, 20 years out in infrastructure and plan adv uh, advantages. American capitalism doesn't allow that. American government doesn't do that. Now, that's changed under the Biden administration with the new infrastructure bill, but largely for the past you know, 30 years, we just didn't invest in infrastructure. So what happened is all those products float over. They hit these choke points, just too many things going through these very finite choke points, which the port is probably the most obvious one. So we had 140, I think at peak, 140 ships off the coast of California uh, in San Pedro Bay. We're down to about 45 now. So what's happened is last summer was sort of the peak of the demand cycle in physical goods. And that is largely, we're down something like 25% now in terms of the volume of goods. And so that backlog of ships is sort of burned off. So we, 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 now been able to handle 100 ships. So we go back five months ago, we've, at, we've been able to handle a lot more ships than we were able to do before. And we're largely past a lot of these COVID uh, uh, personnel and employee issues. And so those bottlenecks are largely resolved or continuing to be resolved. And so um, those bottlenecks are largely behind us. You mentioned is Bed Bath & Beyond sort of secondary to Target? Yeah, but but not necessarily because of the fact that it 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 doesn't get preferential ship uh, treatment on a ship. Some of that's true, but more importantly, it's because they probably didn't have enough inventory or alternative suppliers to to provide them products when they needed it. And um, and they you, you think about bed and bath. We we bought a lot of homes over the last two years, so we're buying a lot of bed and bath uh, bedding and bath supplies, which is just stock them out. <laughs> and I would imagine they have. Much, much tighter supplies and suppliers than, say, Target does. Uh, and probably because Target deals with so many product categories, was able to sort of find alternative suppliers. Target also has a world-renowned supply chain. Walmart, Amazon do as well. And so yeah. uh, largely what we saw is just Bed Map Beyond was unprepared and and, and doesn't have – it wasn't using sophisticated forecasting data to sort of understand it. But the, the, it's just a bottleneck problem. What we saw at the ports is specific to bottlenecks, and that's what really caused a lot of the supply chain disruptions. It's no longer the case. Um, it's that is not what's causing the problems right now. Is we have been able to burn off a lot of that uh, uh, those bottlenecks, and and we're going to see that burn off a lot. Volumes out of China since they've locked down are down thirty percent in container volumes. So you think about that drop. The last time we saw that drop that was non-COVID related and non-holiday related was during 2019 when you had this inventory pull forward. So between the time that Donald Trump put his tariffs in place, we saw a 30% drop in volume from before those tariffs to after those tariffs went into effect. And therefore, we're seeing that same impact happen now because of the Chinese government shutting down its own economy. On that just kind of note, and um, you know, when I do think of Walmart, Amazon, Target, I think of them having these, you know, huge supply chain teams. Obviously, they're spending billions and billions of dollars. They're very important and they're going to get the ear of anybody. But if you were like us, um, you know, there's so many small businesses now that are e-commerce based, but, you know, it might be three or four people in an office and everything is outsourced of their products. Is the world going to become more challenging for small businesses that are, uh, you know, I, I don't know if they're manufacturing them on their own, but they're, you know, uh, assembling goods together and branding them and um, making them their own. Is the world going to get tougher for small businesses or easier? 
Um, I think it's going to get tougher. It has been over the last two years. I mean, yeah. Bed Bath Beyond's a, in my mind, is a big company. Like it's not a small company, right? But a small DTC company that relies upon cheap goods from China, yep, cheap goods from overseas, is going to be at a strategic disadvantage to a company that can hold inventory. I mean, the DTC model works because I can have consistent flow of products when I need them, and I don't have to take a lot of inventory. So when we're thinking direct to consumer e-commerce, it's quite easy and efficient to do that. Um, it's never been easier to acquire a customer and acquire a sell than it is today. But acquiring inventory is a challenging pro problem. And when you're competing against companies like Amazon and Target, which have global buying groups and are monitoring these activities and use data like ours and others to sort of see real-time developments in the market, and you don't, and you're not paying attention to what's happening, you're not paying attention to what's happening in China from a geopolitical standpoint, what's happening along the borders or what's happening inside the country, you're going to be at a strategic disadvantage. And so I think a lot of it's going to be much tougher for some of these upstart e-commerce companies if they have not gone out and find suppliers and partners that can help them. Now, the good news for them is that the third-party logistics industry and the companies, uh, there's been so much investment in supply chain technology is that those companies are helping sort of absorb some of the pressures that you'd normally see. And so one of the things I would want to do if I'm running a small DTC company is I want to make sure that I have alternative suppliers should one not work. And I have a really tight relationship with my third-party logistics provider that can help me understand and navigate what's happening on the ground because they're going to see things well before I see them. And I want to, I want to be informed of what's happening. What we saw in last week in Texas of shutting off the border is that if I'm running a supply chain and I'm dependent upon Mexican uh, imports, is that something I should be worried about long-term or short-term? Is it, is it a non-consequential issue? A lot of people sort of thought it was consequential. I don't think so. I think it sort of quickly resolved itself. And I didn't think it was a long, it was just political posturing by the governor. But this China thing is really significant. And I would want to know that. And I would want to be thinking about alternative sources for product sourcing. I would want to be thinking about having how do I manage inventory with the cost and capital that requires? Because I can always turn on and turn off my DTC customer acquisition, but can I actually get my hands on products when I need them? And so I think there's a lot of things that small businesses need to be aware of that they weren't didn't have to think about before. Is it fair to say that what's going on in China is undoubtedly the largest implication on the world that we know today that, that we've been so accustomed to it's not russia ukraine i mean that's obviously going on and that's tragic but the single largest thing that will change the world is what's happening in china right now i mean obviously covid was impactful but yes in a sort of non-covid world post-cold war the biggest thing to ever happen is china's fraying and inconsistent and what I would call unpredictable behavior. The government's unpredictable behavior is going to have massive ramifications for supply chains. Okay. Um, let's just move to kind of, uh, you know, leading indicators. So we started the conversation. Your your view of the world is, is a leading indicator on where the world is. Obviously, we've covered a lot. But for Americans that are sitting here listening to this podcast, are there some interesting data points things that are on your mind that would say this is a good predictor of where we are today, kind of after all we've kind of heard? What, what's going on right now from, from what's the data showing? 
So U.S. trucking volumes are down 18% since March 9th. So what that means is the number of truckloads that are ordered in the contract market have dropped off a cliff. And it's unseasonally, like, it just doesn't make any, it doesn't follow a seasonal pattern that you would expect. So we've seen a drop of significant amount of drop in volumes of trucking transactions. We use high-frequency data, and we monitor the uh, basically API and EDI transactions between what we call shippers or people that order product. These are big box retailers, uh, consumer product companies. We look at those transactions, and we can actually see whether or not they're ordering trucks or not ordering trucks. And those orders tell us how much volume is moving through the physical economy. On March 9th, the market sort of saw its peak. Um, and since then, we've seen a drop of 18%. That suggests that the U.S. physical goods economy is slowing down significantly. Normally, you would see a surge of orders and freight demand at the end of March. It always happens. It's predictable. It's end of the quarter. That didn't happen this year. And the reasons, as we largely believe, is that inventories are so substantial and the cost of moving product was shocked overnight by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So for a transportation manager, they had an overnight 12% increase in their freight rates for domestic trucking services. And there's now saying, I, I, I don't have as much demand as I had. Consumers aren't pulling on the economy the way they were before. They're starting to spend money on experiences, not physical goods. Therefore, we don't see the demand for trucking services. Does that suggest that the U.S. economy is headed for a recession? Some people believe that. Not, I have not said that, and nor am I an economist that actually predicts that. But there is a lot of belief and a lot of data to support a slowing part of the physical goods economy based on the data we have and other data that, that it comes from other sources, is that the U.S. physical goods economy, the manufacturing economy and the retail economy of physical goods is slowing down significantly compared to where we were six months ago. And is it fair to say, though, even with the slowdown that, you know, we were in euphoria, people were just spending money left and right. Inflation really hadn't come in the way it had. Are we slowing down to what would be considered usually like a normal level or are we like past that? I, again, I know I'm not asking you to, you know, say things that you're not, you know, you can't say, but. Are we no, like, I could say what I think. Here's yeah. the problem is that capacity or supply has been increasing for the past two years. Yeah. So companies have been adding production capabilities, have been adding manufacturing capabilities, have been adding transportation capabilities at an unprecedented and uh, unparalleled speed. So the answer is, Let's imagine that we go back to sort of a, an adjusted basis of where we were in 2019. Yeah. That the economy had grown on a normal basis. You're still well in advance in terms of the capacity. You've grown your capacity far more than you've grown your demand. And so if you look at trucking, which is really where I spend the majority of my time sort of orientated, is that U.S. trucking uh, uh, providers, dispatchable capacity, is at its largest level in history. It's up 10% in just two years. So in the two years that we've been suffering COVID, we've seen an increase of dispatchable capacity by about 10%. If we had gone back to a normal world, 
it'd be up about 4%. So we've seen an expansion of 6%. So let's imagine that we go back to where we were before. What happens is there's more capacity on the road. That's not good if you're a trucking company because you have now more competition. There's more supply. It means you're not going to hold pricing power. At the same time, your costs have increased by 40% from pre-COVID levels. So fuel costs are up 30 cents a mile for a trucking company. Put that in perspective. That means fuel prices have basically doubled in that period of time. Fuel is the number one expense for a trucking company. It has gone from approximately 15 to 20% to 40 to 45% in that period of time. Driver wages have gone up at least 25%. Insurance, maintenance, all up. The cost of a truck, of a used truck that's three years old, went from 60000 to 136000 in the same period of time. So the problem is, if we do go back to where we were before, it's going to be a really, really dark day for someone who entered the industry this past year. So the answer is yes. It very well could be that this cooling is putting us back to where we normally and naturally would be. But the world is different now. The world's operating different. Far more capacity has been built to handle all the volume of goods. These excess points that we've seen over the past two years have forced the industry and the industries to add a lot of production capacity that it otherwise wouldn't have added. So what happens then? At the same time, you had massive, rapid acceleration of inflation. You also have capital costs have gone from, say, you know, a company. I mean, mortgage rates have gone from two and a half percent or three percent to five percent. But look at the prime rate and look at the other cost of capital. Is that also has jumped up? So it's not as if going back to the normal world is a good thing. We don't want that. What we want is that we want demand to stay inflated compared to where we were before. But that seems quite unlikely from where I sit. Yep. This is a weird question. Is it with everything you just said and the cost of uh, uh, you know transportation going up and, and trucks are going up and insurance and on and on and on fuel, is it cheaper for the consumer to go to a store and just get the product there than it is to now have it delivered all the way to their home? Or is it still cheaper to have it at your doorstep than it is to just go to the store and pick it up? You know, there. if you look at the cost of what it costs a retailer to get it to you, it's cheaper in the store. But generally, retailers are non-discriminate and omni-channel providers and aren't necessarily discriminating between a, a, an in-person delivery and a, and a store delivery. So now there are so, that's exceptions. I mean, some products do. But generally, as a consumer, the price deltas are not that different. Okay. Um, and it largely has to do with the fact that if I go into a store, I can shop against, I can take my mobile phone out and, and check and do price checking. So it tends to be the retailers tend to keep pricing pretty consistent. They do a lot of channel checks on pricing between competitors. So you better believe that Best Buy is checking out Amazon's website for what they charge for a TV or a computer, just as, a, as if Amazon is doing, and Amazon suppliers are doing the very same thing. So pricing is pretty uniform from a consumer standpoint. But from a provider standpoint, moving stuff into a store tends to be cheaper than moving it into a consumer's home. And one of the sort of byproducts of e-commerce is that it takes 40% more inventory to run, to, to, to have an equivalent amount of sales through an e-commerce system as it does through a 
physical retail footprint. So it's far more efficient to, to have consumers in the store than it is to have them at home. The other sort of byproduct of that is we're talking about inventory shortages and supply chain issues. One of the features of retail is essentially a push environment, is if a product isn't there, the consumer can't buy it. But sort of the byproduct of e-commerce is I can list a product, I can show it for sale, doesn't, you don't know if that product actually exists or even have taken possession. So you think about your own experiences over COVID is that you would order something and it wouldn't show up for months. You ordered a car, that car existed on the website or existed at, at the dealer's floor, but you haven't seen it for 8 to 12, 10, 12 months. But if you walk into Walmart and there is a stack of books or a stack of, you know, of ice cream, you're going to get that. You know it's there. You can physically touch it. And I think that's one of the reasons we've seen this reversion back to physical retail. So one of the craziest things that's happened over the next last 90 days, which I think even myself sort of largely didn't predict, is that e-commerce purchasing is back to where it was sort of at pre-COVID levels uh, as a percent of retail sales, is that people are now going into the stores. They're going to stores because they, they know that the product's there. And I think that's going to drive a lot of consumer behaviors, that we've sort of been spoiled by this on-demand world. It strikes me that if supply chain issues are fundamentally going to continue to disrupt the way retail products are sold, that the advantages are in the physical brick and mortar companies have a far greater advantage than, say, the e-commerce companies do. And that just simply because the consumer trusts that they can get hands on products. So it's a little bit of a bullish setup for retailers. It's a bullish setup for retailers that are have physical brick and mortar more so than where we were, say, two years ago. Yep. And, and the other thing that's happened over the past two years is a lot of the excess that we had in physical stores have sort of burned off, right? So if you go back to where we were two years ago, there was a large conversation about there being too much physical retail uh, locations in the country and that we were oversupplied with physical stores. What's happened during COVID is a lot of those retailers have had an opportunity to sort of get rid of their underperforming locations not just during COVID, but locations that largely underperformed prior to that, they use that as an opportunity to sort of clean up a lot of the excess. And now we're in a situation where uh, there is an argument to be made that physical brick-and-mortar retail actually may increase. We may see a renaissance of expansion, assuming consumer spending stays vibrant. Uh, and that's the big question right now. Um, all right, two questions off of that. Um, well, one, you just made a comment. You said people are spending their money on experiences, not physical goods. Is is this another maybe bullish setup for experiences? And do you have any data in what data that you're tracking that would say that, you know, younger Americans would much rather buy, you know, concert tickets than, you know, the next flashy watch or something like that? Like, is that a a, a structural shift in demand or is that a like, how do you think about all that? Well, freight. Uh, physical experiences don't move freight, so right. we we don't we don't track that data. Okay, we track cargo movement and physical goods. Um, what we can look at is the credit card data, the yes. high frequency credit card data, and spending cate categories. And what we can see is that there has been a shift in how consumers are spending their money, and it's and it's happening. And you can also see the earnings of companies that service those experiences. So take the airline earnings reports that came out. Delta Airline had a massively robust quarter this past quarter and beat on and Airbnb is beating the hotel operators are beating. And so we certainly know that 
the demand for experiences is quite healthy. You look at the TSA data, the number of people traveling, it's quite healthy. So we know that's taking place. But we also see that physical goods uh, expenditures are starting to tell off. And again, as a someone who's concerned about cargo movement and the number of units to the economy, the gross merchandise value, the GMV, is less meaningful to me than the number of products. So take a e-commerce was down 6% in March's data uh, in terms of spending the retail data. That's 6% in dollar value. We know that inflation has driven cost higher. And let's just take a 7% inflation rate. That means that approximately 13% less physical items move through the economy than they did before. And so what we're seeing is this, certainly there's a lot of evidence that what we, what many people have predicted is that consumers were tired of sitting at home and buying physical goods and they're out spending money on experiences is starting to show up in the data. But we don't have that data. We, we track freight markets and freight markets are incredibly soft, 18% since you know, March 9th, we've seen a drop in volume. It's It's been significant. And it doesn't appear to be botting now, and I don't think it will. Does anything, does any of that data give you an indicator on where inflation is? Has inflation topped? Uh, should it start deflating? What do you think about that? Yeah, I think there's an argument to be made to take energy and food sort of out of the picture. There's an argument to be made that a lot of the stuff that's causing inflation is sort of, sort of has peaked. So, Lumber prices are coming down largely because probably new home construction isn't what it was once was sort of in the robust days of, in the boom bust cycle or boom boom cycle of COVID. Uh, freight rates, you know, if you look at percent of GDP, transportation and supply, transportation is about 12% of global GDP in the United States, about 8.5%. If you look at energy, it's about 45 to 5% of the world economy. Transportation is a much bigger component of the global economy than oil and energy is. And so as a input cost, transportation is far more inflationary than what energy is. The other third reality is one of the things that happens when transportation networks break down, we sort of see a lot of sort of inflation, is that my ability to get my hands on products and my visibility and transparency and dependency of that goes away. And that causes a lot of friction in the economy because businesses can't predict when they're going to have source of products and where it's going to be, that causes sort of a, a, a second order effect on inventory cost and on sort of inflationary pressures. And so as those things ease and as demand eases, then that number will come down significantly. We've seen a drop in freight rates on a per spot mile, about $3.83. And now that same spot rate's around 302 this morning. So we've seen an 81 cent or say a 25% decrease in cost just in trucking spot rates in that period of time. Now, not 100% of that will show up in the data because spot is only about 20% of the trucking market. But what it means is that largely a lot of the upper inflationary and rapid inflation we saw in freight rates is probably behind us. Yep. Is there any technology, and, and a lot of the questions that came in from Twitter were on driverless trucking, um, but from your perspective, is there any breakthroughs, anything that is exciting to you that would say, man, if this happens at scale or this actually even comes to fruition, you know, we could see some real um, opportunities to decrease you know, transportation costs for products? I mean, 
Don't read the the headlines, including freight waves, when it comes to autonomous trucks. Like <laughs> you can read the headlines, don't draw any conclusion about it. So the reality is that autonomous trucks and autonomous freight is 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 a decade out before you see point to point transportation. So yeah. what we're gonna see over the next decade is the technology is getting better, is more reliable, and we will see uh, case studies of of autonomous trucks used in certain pilots, but generally. Those are very small volumes, and we're the very early innings of that. And the U.S. market is not prepared, nor is the technology ready to give us full autonomous. So it's a decade out before you see point-to-point transportation. This is very different than sort of data and digitization of media or digitization of audio or video like this experience today. That's easy to do. It's data. When you're talking about physically moving a vehicle that's 80,000 pounds on a highway, <laughs> where you can't predict if deer are going to jump out at you, or or you can look at the cars ahead of you, but what about the stuff to the side? And you have to calculate those distances. It's it's much more difficult to do that uh, than, than what you experience in a digital revolution. And I think it's going to take a while before we see full autonomous uh, hit or hit the industry. It's at least a decade out is my prediction. It could happen sooner, but I doubt it. Like, I really would be shocked if we saw true autonomous happen before at least 2026. Um, it's That would be the earliest I would expect us to have successful pilots. And then it would take another five to 10 years to sort of work out all the legal and liability issues that are still not dealt with. Is there any more realistic breakthroughs than like tabling that? Is it drones? Is, is there anything like that could really have an impact on the world as we know it today, or a lot of these just fun stories to talk about, but they're they're just a ways out. But drones are coming, and drone deliveries are coming. And they're testing them, and they're it's exciting. And I think in the next five years, you'll see those. You're more likely to see, like last mile, you'll see a UPS truck pull up to the neighborhood, and the driver press a button, and it sort of shoots out 20 drones and does package delivery. That is actually quite possible. And, we're really on the verge of having that technology. So that truly last mile that we talk about a lot in the industry is more likely to see autonomous and, and robotics sort of take place at that last mile. The neighborhood delivery, I think, is is more um, is, is more likely to happen sooner than later. And I do think we'll see autonomous happen there. I don't think we'll see highway transportation and class eight trucks, the big heavy duty 18 wheelers become, become autonomous for some period of time. Yep. But last mile neighborhood deliveries, absolutely. We'll see those in the next couple of years. And they're already happening in pilots. If I want a pizza delivered on a college campus, I believe it's the University of Michigan, and I can order a Domino's pizza and it delivers right there. I mean, it's Ann Arbor based company. Of course, you would expect Domino's to do it there. But that is happening. We're seeing that. That's kind of exciting. It's kind of cool. But in terms of replacing truck drivers, we're not there yet. But, you know, you very well in the next couple of years could be receiving a delivery by an automated vehicle that shows up at your house uh, that does a neighborhood delivery that doesn't have a human. That is very likely to happen, and consumers will will experience that well before this industrial freight market experiences it. One of the things that I think we talk about re-automation or reshoring of warehousing and manufacturing Automation has happened inside the warehouse. Ro- human-assisted robotics is a real thing where you have a human robot but has a second robotic or a human hand with the second robot sort of the system with thing like assembly, like especially finite assembly. That stuff's taking place, and that's exciting. So a lot of that stuff's happening visible to a lot of people. Um, 
you know, data is flowing, information's been flowing. We've never had more transparency of what's happening on a real-time basis in supply chains. Those things aren't sexy for people on the outside to think about because it's sort of invisible. But that revolution that's taking place is going to help companies manage their supply chains much more efficiently than they've ever had. They're going to have the ability of product, and they're going to be able to move their manufacturing and sourcing much quicker than they ever have. So these changes are going to take place much faster than they would otherwise have had thanks to technology. Craig, this was incredible. Well, appreciate you having me on. I, I know I got a little geopolitical, but I it was amazing. I, I, I think you have to talk about this G, you know, China and what's happening. And as an American and someone who, uh, you know, like I'm, I'm not a like a diehard like, but you look at this as an American, you're like, this is it's a really exciting time. And I think we love to look like sort of hate on ourselves until until someone else hates on us, and then we're all like, no, it's like talking about your. You could talk about your kids all day long or your brother, <laughs> but someone else does it, you're highly offended. I think as an American, this is an exciting time, man. I think we we self-loathe and we sort of lament the way things used to be because we think it was great. But the reality is that we're going back to a really unprecedented renaissance that's going to be upon us. This was such a treat. I am in your camp. Uh, I learned a ton today, and it would be an honor to probably do this again sometime because you are clearly at the forefront of what's going on. And um, yeah, I just I can't say enough about today. So thank you. Well, Chris, appreciate having me on, and and uh, you can reach me at at Freight Alley if anyone wants to connect me on Twitter. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.